0: Hey, I'm Gretchen Men. I'm a guitarist, composer, and lifelong student of music, and you are listening to Talking Blues.
1: So, in your bio it says that you destroyed your mother's violin at a very young age of three. Um, Can I assume that your mother is a violinist?
0: She actually isn't. She had a violin, but it was primarily to harass her older sister and embarrass her when boys came over when they were kids. So she had a violin. My parents are hippies. And so they were, my dad was very permissive when, when his three-year-old wanted to play a violin like a guitar and drag it around the house. He thought, oh, how how lovely my daughter's expressing herself. But apparently the violin was never the same. And my mom was not very happy about it.
1: <laughs> um, your dad also wrote for, or oh, he was the editor um, for the Guitar Player magazine? Is
0: he that- was when I was, well, before I was born and when I was a small child. I didn't quite have a full grasp on what he did until I became interested in music. I think it's hard for people to believe that that he didn't kind of force a guitar in my hands, given what he did for, for work. But he was... Um, you know my parents i think just i was very lucky they just wanted me to figure out what i wanted to do in life and to be able to be a functional adult while doing it and so when i got interested in guitar kind of on my own my dad kind of gave me a nudge and was like honey do you know that i kind of know a little bit about this and so he took me to to the cd store and we um and he you know pulled off you know, Jeff Beck records. And he's like, okay, you like Steve Vai and Joe Satriani? Okay, you need to know who Steve Morse is. And, you know, he kind of said, okay, if you like this, you should also listen to these guys. And I just remember him getting me a stack of CDs, everyone from like Adrian Ballou to Django Reinhardt, um, just um, so so many, he definitely pointed me in the right direction without ever um, trying to choose my path for me. So I'm very lucky. Um, Was he a musician himself? He's a writer. But
1: but based on the fact that if he was an editor at Guitar Player, did he have to know guitars or was it just, was that not important?
0: He Well, he's a a very knowledgeable, uh, he's knowledgeable about what he writes, but he's not a professional musician. I always say if you hand him a guitar, he's not going to play like a catalog of songs, but he's got a really almost annoyingly good ear. You hand him a guitar, you put on any song and he'll figure out the key and just kind of be able to improvise around in it. So he's not a professional musician. He's an amazing writer and he's very knowledgeable about music.
1: I'm, I'm surprised that the music thing didn't, um, or his, his and your mother's musical influences weren't as prevalent. I mean, the fact that he had to take you to the CD store and recommend these things that they weren't at the house playing Adrian Bellew or, Steve Morris.
0: yeah I mean my dad had a record collection but you know for me growing up like records weren't the thing it was CDs so I didn't want to play records that's what like my dad played now they're all cool again but um, <laughs> but I wanted CDs so he, he had to take me and I, and I wanted my own and growing up I remember my mom was really into like old musicals so that was some of the music oh and and ballet. And my dad, I remember him listening to Bob Dylan a lot. But in terms of some of the like, super geeky guitar player stuff, I don't really remember that really being a thing around my house.
1: How did music come into your life? Or how did you want to become a guitar player? And then what made you want to become a guitar player? Like what was the music you were listening to that you wanted to learn?
0: So Joe Satriani was like a big rock star and, and, And his stuff was actually getting played, you know. Um, And so I remember hearing that. And I remember hearing the band Extreme with Nuno Betancourt and just thinking, you know, when you're first getting into music, you're not really confident. Like you would ask somebody, at least for me, I would ask somebody who knew more than I do, like, is that a good guitar player? That sounds like a good guitar player. (laughs) And I remember hearing Nuno Betancourt and that was the first time I'm like, that is definitely a good guitar player. Like I did not have to ask anybody and same thing with Joe Satriani. But the moment that I remember knowing that I needed to play guitar was my dad took me to see Joe Satriani and his opening act was Eric Johnson and Eric played Cliffs of Dover. And I was like, okay, that's the most joyous sonic experience I've ever imagined either Either he's the happiest person in the world and therefore plays that kind of music, or being able to play guitar that well makes you the happiest person. <laughs> so I, uh, I asked my dad if I could have guitar lessons. And I'm still really good friends with my first guitar teacher. His name is Sam Eigen.
1: Okay. So you hear this and do you think I want to do that? I want to be an instrumental guitar player.
0: It wasn't even that it wasn't like, okay, you know, whatever, I'm a teenager. and Now I'm choosing a career. It was more like, you know, I think there's something in our development around that age where music becomes incredibly important to people. And it was more like, I just wanted to get a taste of whatever that thing was that made me feel so intensely that made me have this taste of this, this kind of ineffable beauty that music can bring. So it was more like I just wanted to get my hands on a guitar and you know see see what that what came about but it was never well not for a few years it was never in my mind that I would like become a serious guitar player or much less a professional guitar player that that big aha moment happened for me when I was actually seeing it was either I think it was it was Steve Morris with the Dixie Dregs and they were they're, they're so incredibly musically terrifyingly good and yet there's this wonderful chemistry that happens in the band you know it's not just Steve and a bunch of backing musicians it's these musical conversations that happen these what does he call it like electric chamber or uh, electric chamber music so it really does have that almost that level of dialogue and arrangement that like a string quartet would have you know with these different instruments and I remember watching the show and just being so into it and then it hit me like these guys are doing their jobs like they're at work and i thought wouldn't it be so crazy if i became a professional musician like could i like you know did i need to start when i was like you know four you know instead of as a teenager and and about that time is when i actually got serious about guitar and and started studying classical guitar with Philip DeFrémery, and he assured me, "It's incredible how much a, a great teacher, or how much our teachers, can encourage or discourage our paths." He was, he was the first one really to say, "Like, no, you're not starting too late. You didn't have to start when you were, you know, in elementary school." And he always taught me not like I was just some college student, you know, wanting to get some credits for music, but he taught me as though I would be a professional musician. And having that confidence from him, I think, I I don't know if I could overstate how important that probably was.
1: Well, confidence is such a big thing, right? Like, it's it's an ongoing process. Um, Tell me, how old were you at that point? Like, at what what point did you think, okay, I'm going to be serious about this? And what age was you?
0: I think it was right when I first got to college, so 18.
1: Okay, so what I also find interesting is that you you see Joe Satriani and Eric Johnson and and then you think, this is what I want to learn how to do. Is that the focus? Did you you go through anything else or did you immediately try to learn how to play like Joe Satriani and, and other great instrumental guitar players?
0: I still thank my first guitar teacher, Sam, for the fact that I think it was like on my third lesson that I asked him to, well, I, one of the first things I wanted to learn was Trademark by Eric Johnson. And I actually got through, I mean, I'm sure I was playing it, you know, out of time and you know, all the things that you don't notice at the time, but I actually learned, I think the whole thing, you know, with him transcribing it for me. Um, and I, I do remember that there were a few licks that I did not have up to speed. But very early on, maybe within my first few lessons, I asked him if I could learn too many notes by Steve Morris, which I don't know if you know the piece, but if you want to, if you go look it up, the idea of, it's something that it would, is almost inhuman for a professional <laughs> musician. His single note per string, alternate picking arpeggios are so clean so defined so relentless and there i am being like hi can you teach me this and he didn't laugh at me which is amazing (laughs) he he actually transcribed it for me but what was so cool about that and um and it's why i always tell people don't don't worry about trying to learn something that's at your level learn what you want to play and you will achieve a higher level so it didn't really matter to me that I wasn't able to play too many notes and sound like Steve Morris in my first three months of playing guitar. It was more like it got me picking up my guitar and it got me working hard. If if you really, really are excited to learn something, you just put in more time. And that time and focus is what what catapults you to the next level and the next level and the next level.
1: When you went to school and decided that you wanted to follow the path of classical music. Tell me about that transition. Was it a transition?
0: A little bit. So in high school, I I had a lot of the angst that I think people have in high school and felt a little alienated. Some of my dear friends got really into partying to a level that I was not prepared to get on board for. So I spent a lot of time just like in the library doing schoolwork and reading Russian existentialists like Dostoevsky. <laughs> And and as a result, I kind of kept getting put in these advanced placement classes that I didn't really even think much about. It's like, I just sort of, I don't know, you're a kid, you show up, you do what the adults tell you and hope that you'll get them off your back so that you can have a little bit of time to play guitar. So when I got to college, I found out that my college actually accepted advanced placement credits as college credit. So just by being you know an angsty outcast for a couple years in high school i had a year of college credit without even realizing i did and so you know my school asked me do you want to graduate a year early you can if you want and i knew how much college was costing and i knew how much i was amassing in terms of debt and i was like yeah i do want to graduate a year early that sounds great so but that meant that i had to declare my major like yesterday, but I had just gotten there. So I'd gotten to, to college thinking maybe I would study English or sociology. Like I really didn't know. I was just, again, kind of showing up and being like, okay, I guess I'm in college now. And when I found out that I had to make a decision about what is my major, I, I realized that it's my undergraduate degree. I should just study what I want to learn. And at that point, what I wanted to learn was more about music. So I declared a music major and started studying classical guitar and took you know music theory and harmony and composition and all of that. And don't regret it for a second.
1: How much exposure did you have to classical music at that point?
0: Not, not if I had been like the child of a professional classical musician. Um, my mom had taken my sister and I to see you know, the nutcracker ballet around Christmas when we were kids and things like musicals, but in terms of classical music, I mean, here and there, Mozart, Bach, Beethoven, but not, not, not a huge amount.
1: And at that point, was it more about playing classical music? Was it more about learning composition? Like what drew you the most into that world of classical music at school?
0: It was the reputation of the teacher, uh, Philip DeFremery. I mean, I loved all different types of music. And I remember somebody telling me that this teacher, he still teaches, Philip uh, that he was this amazing guitarist and he had perfect technique and all of his students developed perfect technique. And I thought, sign me up for perfect technique. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> and, and also I thought that what on earth could be bad about having this as, as a foundation, even if I know that I'm not going to be somebody who just stays in the classical lane, so to speak, but, um, like a lot of my heroes, Steve Morris, he almost on all of his solo records, there's one piece that's very clearly like Baroque influenced. And, and so I was thrilled to be able to get college credit and study was such a truly, I mean, I I sound like I'm overstating it, but Philip DeFarmery is a magical teacher. His level of patience and focus and ability to get, you know, restless teenagers to sit down and really open up their ears and, and, and hear more deeply than I had ever heard before through his example, not through his... He was never um dictatorial in his teaching it was like you could see how deeply he cares about um about music and about the details of you know tone production and and expression and um, and the fact that he never taught down or talked down to me It's like you you kind of end up just being like, well, he thinks I can do it. I guess I should just do it, (laughs) you know? not, Not in terms of the path of music, but in terms of the standard to which he held his students. So
1: as you're being educated, being a student of music, what else are you doing musically? Are you playing in bands outside of school? Are you doing other types of music?
0: No, when I was in school, I was... I was there for it a hundred percent, you know, getting all my work together. And, and also, I mean, my music department thought it was kind of ridiculous that somebody who was kind of as early on the path of music as I was, was declaring a music major. Cause I really, even if, even though I picked up the guitar in high school, I I was dealing with what a lot of people around the, that time was were dealing with, which is all sorts of social <laughs> issues. Um, studying for the SATs applying for college you know those kinds of things so it wasn't like I was sitting there playing for three or four hours a day so when I declared this music major I was among people who had been playing music and studying intensely for most of their lives so I had some catching up to do and a lot of you know extra work
1: and so I would presume that you would it and Spent a lot of time trying to catch up.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I I think I am glad for how I learned guitar because I feel like I feel like one of the limitations that a lot of guitar teaching instills is this reliance on patterns and shapes without a clear link between that and music in terms of like names of notes or relationships between notes. And because the way I was learning, really my first lesson with my classical teacher, he sat me down, gave me a a chart of the neck of the guitar and said, okay, learn this for next week. So it was never, do I learn the notes on the fretboard? It was like, learn this for next week. (laughs) And uh, so between those lessons and then studying music theory and harmony and counterpoint and all of that then applying that to the electric guitar it meant that i had a slower start probably in terms of like you asked if i'd played in bands i didn't and i wouldn't have really been able to but i had those years of sitting down understanding okay here's how you build a major triad here's where the notes are on the neck and finding those things for myself And though there was that sort of initial slower process, there was something also, I think it fostered a deeper understanding and at least a confidence that I could, between what I was learning in my academic classes and then in in my lessons, that I could figure out what I needed to do on on the guitar.
1: When does the live happen?
0: Shortly after college, I, I, I that's when I started playing in bands. Um,
1: Tell me about that experience. It
0: was so terrifying at first. Oh, my gosh. I just remember, like, I feel like one of the things that a lot of my other friends had is that they, you know, had groups of friends that, where they were all kind of learning together, you know. But because I had started a little bit. Later, you know, meaning like the people in my high school who had been playing guitar had been playing for a few years longer than I had. So I wasn't at a place that I could play with them. Uh, Initially, playing in bands was so scary because what I had been learning was like, here's a classical piece, play this. So the idea of let's get together and jam, I was like, what does that even mean? Like, how, how how do I even do that? If there isn't a piece of music in front of me, how do I even play that? So it was terrifying at first, but I think people, you know, I found really nice groups of people to kind of initially um, not, not play very seriously with, but shortly, very shortly thereafter, I got recommended to play in an all female ACDC tribute band. And I think because there were just very few a lot has changed even in the last like five, five or 10 years. Um, There are a lot more women playing and playing at an incredibly high level. Uh, When I was just getting started in bands, you know, especially if you're looking for somebody who's local uh, it, it was, it wasn't as easy to find somebody. So when this ACDC tribute band was looking for their Agnes young, I was like, well, their, their whole thing is they like to play things note for note. And I'm like, oh, I can do note for note. Like, that's what I do. Like, you don't change what Bach wrote, you know, Right. so, so I learned ACDC songs with the respect as if they had been composed by, by any other great musician. And then very shortly after that, maybe a year and a half, Zapparella started. So Zep, I always tell people Zapparello is my second band. I'm just really loyal <laughs> to the the people and projects that I love.
1: <laughs> okay, so tell me, you have this classical music discipline. You don't have a lot of experience playing live. And then you get this offer to join an ACDC cover band. Mm-hmm. You, you basically approach that the same way you would approach learning a classical music piece. Is that the way it would work?
0: Yeah, except for that I didn't have like sheet music in front of me. I had to... I mean, there are some transcriptions, but I had to do a lot by ear. So that was really the first of me having to develop an ear for transcription, which was initially very slow. Although, huge respect to people who did this before there were, you know, methods of slowing down MP3s and CDs. So um, I've I've heard, you know people, people older than I am who, who took records and slowed them down to half speed and all of that. So, um, I, I can't even imagine the, the patience one learns doing it that way. So I, yeah, I, I, approached it very meticulously as much as I could hear it. And that worked for the, the band and the audience that I was playing in because they wanted it to be just like the record. So that was my goal. But
1: I presume that playing in an ACDC tribute band would be quite different than playing classical recitals. Tell me about that experience of being on stage and Mm. what that was like for you.
0: Well, part of the reason that I wanted to take the gig is I remembering that that what got me into guitar was rock music Mm -hmm. so it's like i've sort of spiraled around rock and classical and rock and classical and you know now other other types as well i i didn't want to be a boring performer you know i wanted to be somebody who could get up on stage and and not just stare at my fretboard the whole night great classical musicians i'm you know they are great performers as well but I was very well aware that coming from a classical background where the level of compositional detail and sometimes technical requirements were something else that the idea of, you know, running around on stage while playing guitar, I was like, that sounds terrifying. That probably means I should do it. (laughs) So I knew it would make me develop um, some stage presence, and I knew it was gonna be good for me to learn some of the most classic rock songs of all time just to build my rock vocabulary. I knew I loved it as a listener, but in terms of actually getting it under my fingers and into my my musical education more and having the accountability of playing it to audiences and then getting the experience of playing a lot of shows really fast meant that I went from being, I felt like way behind the curve to getting to play as many shows as people had time for because the band got really busy really fast.
1: So you're probably in your early 20s, mid 20s at this point?
0: Yeah, early, early early, like just out of just out okay. of college, yeah.
1: And then are you thinking like do you have a plan? Do you do you know what you want to do, want to be?
0: I knew I wanted to play so um I knew I wanted to play music and I also knew that music is a really difficult path. And you know that that's why I got my my pilot's licenses was just to have it be a responsible plan B. <laughs> so I was doing okay. that on the side. <laughs> so
1: this is the thing. I mean, not only are you a great musician, but to think okay, I need to make sure that I'm not going to starve. I don't want music to be mm to be, I don't know what you thought, but I I guess you, you needed a, you thought I would get a job that will pay decently and then I could continue playing my music. What should I do? And then you chose being a pilot.
0: Obviously. How, <laughs> how,
1: how did that happen?
0: It's funny, it's like you say, you sort of in, implied earlier, sometimes there are these moments that seem so random and they can change the course of your life. Right around the time that I I don't know if you ever become just like obsessed with like a song or an album or whatever, but I had become obsessed with the Pink Floyd song, Learning to Fly. (laughs) And right at that time, there were flyers at my college that said, learn to fly, you know, uh, $99 for three flight lessons at the local airport for college students. And I was like, oh, Okay, you know, I, I had some like birthday money or something like that, and I was like, I'll go take a few flight lessons. You know, that it seemed so like that sounds like a cool thing to do. So I took a few flight lessons, and I was like, okay, that was really fun. I've always loved roller coasters and things like that, and and then very quickly you realize like I'm a college student, like I can't, I can, I can barely get groceries. I don't, I, I can't do like an expensive hobby. Like no way.
1: Right, flying is an expensive hobby, right? Like learning how to fly, you have to put in your hours and it costs a lot of money.
0: Exactly. Um, But then when graduation was coming up and I was looking at the possibility of either going back for a master's degree, like in composition or classical guitar, but also realizing like, I haven't been on stage. I haven't played a gig. I don't want to be the most kind of inexperienced Person with this kind of this degree that um, that doesn't match my experience, so I thought I'd rather get some experience, and also I don't want to become the way I had teachers and professors who had these wonderful attitudes about music. But you also encounter people who are just really jaded and bitter, and you just think, what What did music do to you? You see these people who like their hearts got broken by music or something. And I just thought, well, how I'm so lucky to have something that I love so much. How do I protect it? And I thought, well, everybody knows music's a terrible financial decision. Like, if you don't know that, that's, that's on you, right? Um, what if I just approach it without any financial expectations? What if I just assume I'm going to have to make my money doing something else? And then I approach music as somebody who just truly loves it and I make the decisions that allow me to keep loving it. And then it kind of occurred to me, I was like, wait a minute, every time I go flying, I know how much my flight instructor gets paid. And for a college student, that seemed like a huge amount of money. And when I researched flight schools, I I sort of figured that I owed myself another year of education because I had graduated early. The cost for flight school was about the same cost as a year of college. So money that I had already kind of saved, you know, by not doing another year but by, by by graduating early. And um and it took about a year. So I was like, okay, it's about the same amount of time, but now I'll have a music degree and these pilots licenses. So something that was an unjustifiable hobby kind of became an interesting career path because I knew that I could make decent hourly money. I knew that I could do something that was interesting and challenging in a way that um that wasn't the same grind that like I worked a few jobs in the service industry and man, nothing but respect for people who are able to do that and still get home and play their instruments because I've never had a worse practice summer than when I was working a retail job and and a bar and a bar job the same summer. So I, I thought, well, this, this, this will allow me to make my own schedule to make a good hourly rate, to engage my brain and to help people, to help other people achieve their their dreams you know working with students can be really fun you know no two students are the same
1: right um it begs the question i just automatically think is there anything that that you have you ever encountered something that you thought you couldn't do i get this feeling that once you put your mind to it you probably feel like you could do anything
0: oh that's um that's a sweet question. And I want to credit my, my parents for, for any of that, that vibe I give off. Yeah. I mean, of course, like, you know, if somebody's like Gretchen, you want to play, you want to be a linebacker, you know, it's like, <laughs> um, no, I I mean, I think I've, I'm really lucky that I've had parents that have always kind of just made me think that if I work hard enough that I'll be able to achieve something, you know, I don't think the idea was ever like to give me a false sense of, you know, to overstate, you know, any potentialities or abilities, but more just the idea that that uh, hard work and discipline, you, you may not know exactly what you're going to achieve, but you should be able to achieve something. And I believe that's true for everybody. You know, I think we all have our natural inclinations and proclivities and things like that. But But I think a lot of people have things that maybe they're naturally good at, but those aren't the things that interest them. And I think that interest and dedication and daily commitment to something is almost more of what counts when it comes to expertise and a in a long term path. Like I, I don't think I don't think you need to be somebody who in your first week or month of playing is just blowing minds. You know, most people I feel like if I ask them what's the thing you're the most naturally good at, it's the thing that, that didn't hold their interest. Mm-hmm. It, you know, maybe it wasn't enough of a challenge. I don't know.
1: Do you still fly?
0: No, no, I did just, I, I keep renewing my, my flight instructor's license, but I had to, even though I enjoy it, I had to put it on the back burner because unlike a lot of other things, you can't fly a little bit and be safe and responsible. And when students, when you're teaching, you know, students are paying a lot of money, to get these licenses. And that means that they need to kind of keep, um, keep going at a certain pace. And I got too busy doing music. So in a way my responsible plan B got relegated to the back burner <laughs> is the, is the thing that i I guess I can do if I ever really, really need to, but music, music got too busy within the first couple years I was doing it. But, but that was in part because it's like the female tribute band thing was, was, um, it was so easy, I guess, to book and people showed up for it so much that we were able to just get really to to play a lot.
1: Okay. I have to just one more question about flying. So mm-hmm. when you fly and you, you, you encounter air pockets or bad turbulence, mm-hmm. do you think nothing of it because, you know, every the plane is just as safe as whatever?
0: Yeah. My, my main fear is that somebody else next to me is going to like throw up on me or on the plane <laughs> or something like that. That's my biggest concern. Uh, no, mostly it's like, uh, if I'm on a, like a commercial flight, my concern is just more just seeing that other people get really uncomfortable or maybe that my drink will spill, you know, or something like that. But in terms of like, um, worrying about like the, the safety of the plane, I don't worry about it. I mean, the, I think the level to which the turbulence would have to be bad, would be so much worse than people imagine in order to really risk there being some sort of structural damage. It's just not worth worrying about. I mean you could worry about your ceiling falling into
1: true. Um okay so you you do this tribute band thing. How quickly do you become comfortable with the live aspect and and being able to jump around and do whatever you wanted to do with a guitar?
0: Well I'm still worrying I'm still working on It's like that ever receding horizon, you know? You never think, at least for me, I never think like I have arrived. It's more like, okay, you get to a place that you think is gonna be a destination only to realize the destination's further away. And so, I don't know. I mean, I, I still am working to become more of any number of things on stage. And to this day, I can I can still get very um, uncomfortable and nervous, and I can get stage fright. N- not if I'm playing like with Zeparella, but if I'm if I'm doing something that's different or really exposed or really you know um, unusual.
1: Can you give me an example of what that would be?
0: Sure. Um, I recently just played at the museum, uh, the Musical Instrument Museum in Phoenix, with my original trio, and. It's funny because I asked my booking agent. I was like, "Are you are you sure they know like what kind of music I am?" Because I I have so many different things that I've put up online, you know, um, for acoustic stuff, for um, classical guitar, and sometimes people will see one video and they'll just think, "Oh, that's the type of player that person is." And at least with my trio, it's like we're much more like probably in a world like hard rock. Like we we are not a mellow, sit down and eat your dinner and chat over us while we play kind of, um, kind of vibe. It's um, so I was a little bit concerned (laughs) that people weren't, weren't, weren't really prepared for what we were going to bring. And then on the other hand, I, I knew that we needed to play the songs that, you know, the people who were there to see us expected us to play. So my way of um, trying to make everybody happy, at least what I imagined was that I opened the set with about 20 minutes of just me on solo, clean electric guitar, um, playing things that are more classically inspired, like sort of more um, jazzy type arrangements of things. And that's like, you're all by yourself and it's totally silent and the tiniest little thing. Um, Even though I I've done that, you know, for videos and stuff in the moment, I just remember, like, definitely being like, "Okay, breathe, breathe, you know. Um, But then, you know, I I get up there with, you know, my bass player and drummer and everything feels really comfortable again. So it's it's just a question sometimes of of newness and how many cycles you have with things. I know when Zapparella started adding songs from the acoustic set in, that was the first time I got really nervous at a Zapparella show in recent years is that, again, it's really exposed. It's something different. You know, um, you're hearing things differently with acoustic guitar. It's It's not the same as just a loud electric guitar. And then you have some in your monitor. It's like different feedback characteristics, different monitoring characteristics. There was one show where we hadn't expected... We'd set the monitors, not realizing the audience was going to be singing so loud and going to California that I was like, I can't hear myself even a little bit. You know, I was playing essentially by Braille, which is really hard to do as a musician. It's like you need that feedback, you know. So it's just kind of sorting things out and getting getting used to different things that are being asked of you.
1: I was actually listening to the Zeppelin live album today. Mm -hmm. So when you do Zepperella and you were talking about ACDC Tribute Band and how you had to be note by note perfect. Mm. How do you deal with the Zeppelin material? Is it to be as precise as the album or because in some ways the live Zeppelin is so different from the recorded Zeppelin. Do you have that leeway to to stretch it out a bit or does it have to be as close to the album as possible?
0: That's a great question. And it it really is the question if you're going to be a band that honors the music of Led Zeppelin, because it is this huge spectrum. It's like, so you have at least what I consider like the letter of the law, like the, the authoritative recorded version that everybody has heard, right? But then you have this spirit of Zeppelin that was so deeply improvisatory. I always say nobody took more liberties with Jimmy Page than Jimmy Page. So you have... The way I think of it is that if you're doing it respectfully, there's kind of a, a, a ton of different right ways you can do it. The way that I've opted to approach it is, I'm a fan, and I think that first and foremost, you you gotta. I wanted to play things the way that I was used to hearing them. So, like the album, so I learned things. As note for note as I can possibly get them, given the fact that Jimmy Page was famous for multi tracking guitars so sometimes you have to do all sorts of weird approximations or. Sometimes i'll use double stops you know where there's clearly a a double tracked like guitar line and a harmony, but you, you can get both lines, if you, you know, arrange it differently. Um, And then usually what we'll do is we will stretch out in places where Zeppelin stretched out so, for example. Dazed and confused. There's this beginning lines, you know, those harmonics. And then it goes into this verse. But live, they stretched it out a little bit further. Jimmy played a little bit more stuff there. So rather, so I play the stuff like the album, you know, the things that people are there to hear and to show them, I have done my homework. I promise I i promise i'll do my best not to butcher all of our hero here you know to show that i have put in the work and to and to honor the piece of music as though it is a composition because it it is and then once we've done that i will do an improvised solo where i try to improvise within the the universe of jimmy page But maybe with a little bit of my own flavor here and there not to try to undermine anything, but more to just say, you know, part of part of honoring this music isn't just in mimicry, you know, it's it's in having a moment that's going to be one moment between our band and the audience that is there tonight, and it will never be replicated exactly the same way twice. Um, so we try to do a little bit of both and we try to do that extra credit stuff, not as a substitute for what people are hoping to hear. So they're going to hear the solo that they can sing every note to it, but then they might get a little longer version too.
1: What is it about tribute bands like Zeparella that, that I wouldn't know anything about? Let's see. Like, does the popularity of a band like that surprise you? Does the way that the audience treat you surprise you? Is there anything that, that, I mean, you know, obviously tribute bands are huge and Mm Zepharella tours all over the place and therefore it has a following. But what is it that I I might have no clue about that, that you do that might have surprised you?
0: Sure. Okay. I, I can tell you two things come to mind. The first thing is coming from you know a little a little bit of my my soul and education being in the classical world, there's something that I find confusing and kind of disappointing about certain rock attitudes that somehow honoring other people's music is um, just not not an is somehow irrelevant and I think would you? Would you say to a jazz musician that playing standards is irrelevant? You know, you call the the local symphony to tell them that they have to stop covering Beethoven. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Great music is great music. And if people want to hear it, why, you know, we learn our language, our spoken language imitatively. Learning from your heroes as a musician is a great way to expand yourself uh, musically and creatively. And also be able to connect with people on music that is already part of the common canon and is therefore part of like a common language. So to me, there's no shame in that, you know, I mean, you can do it and you can do it badly or you can do it well, but there's nothing that's inherently shameful about it. In terms of something that people would probably not know, but any tribute band musician would know it's way easier to pick new songs to learn than it is to figure out which songs to not play in order to accommodate the new songs. (laughs) So you can always come up with a list of, Oh, I want to do that song. I want to do that song. And only recently have I kind of started being like, okay, everybody I'm super down. I love these songs. But before we actually go and spend all the time to learn them and rehearse them, we need to prepare ourselves emotionally for what song are we going to take out of the set? If we're going to put in traveling Riverside blues, what are we taking out? Are we taking out the lemon song? Are we taking out cashmere? Like we can't just continue to expand the set. None of us. I mean, we like playing two hours, but I don't think anybody wants to play four hours. Maybe, or let's just say, maybe you have to have some substances that, that we don't have. And, you know, Um, so it's always, it's the question is never what great new songs are there to learn. It's, what do you rotate out to accommodate the new songs? And that's a painful process and, and can involve a lot of long discussions and and, and angst within a band.
1: <laughs> and I would presume that you do this because you're real fans of this music,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? Like, I mean, like yeah. you probably sure. more than the average person and you would yeah. know that material more than the yeah. average person. Yeah. So it must be much more difficult to take out a song. Um, yes. I do want to talk about the, the album you shared with me, your last album. As I said, I think it's stunning. And what I loved about it is just just how diverse the piece is. And I was expecting a lot of rock guitar for whatever reason. And then what I, what, what I got was somebody who is a great composer. Mm. Is it a type of material? Like I don't know if you've been able to perform that live many times but I would presume that's a difficult thing.
0: Yeah, I, I would like very much to, but because exactly as you observed, it's not a guitar album, and the idea of relegating, say, that first violin that to me is like the the other kind of most featured instrument uh, to a backing track is just no. There's no way I would do that. So I, I wrote it to be an album, and if it ever is something that can get the budget and the rehearsal time to be performed, I would love to, but I think it's also okay to have stuff that's meant to be an album and, um, maybe it'll get performed someday, but, but apart from that, no, I I didn't expect that it would. I mean, hiring all the, the instrumentalists required would, would require a budget that I just don't have
1: without, The monetary side of it, but like if you if somebody said I need to see this live, could you put this on live as as you see it? Um, And this is the album called "Abandon All Hope." Well, how many musicians would be required to perform that piece?
0: Okay, yeah. Um. So for the whole album, we need string quartet, piano, organ, drums, bass, guitar, soprano.
1: It's a lot of people.
0: So. But, you know, and then for vocal harmonies, you know, cause we, we multitracked, um that's my sister. Who's the soprano on the album. Um, wow. And because we did a few different tracks of her, well, if we were, we could get by without the vocal, without the layers of, of Kirsten's, but, um, but yeah, that's seven, right? Seven guitar, bass, drums, organ, piano, string, quartet, no, nine. Sorry. I was counting string quartet ones. So,
1: when you decide to take on this project, which is based on Dante's Inferno, how, what was the process in in this happening?
0: Mm -hmm. This again, this was one of those very clear moments where, so I had released my first album called Hail Souls. And I hadn't ever really intentionally done, I didn't want to be a solo artist. I really wanted to have like a band. But what happens is, you know, you, you try different lineups, different bands, and you realize like, okay, the one thing that isn't going to change here is me. I'll still always be involved in my music. And, and so I ended up releasing a bunch of songs I had written for, for another band that I played in and that ultimately, um, ended up splitting up. Um, I just was like, well, I want to get these down. And ultimately I also didn't have anything for people to hear, or I didn't have documentation of me outside of tribute bands, you know, and even though I love the, you know, like I said, the educational experience of playing in a tribute band, it's like the the, the level to which that is, that's a small part of who I think anybody in, in a tribute band, that's a small part of who they are musically. And I didn't have anything though to show otherwise. So I did Hail Souls and I learned a lot doing it. And I was thinking about my next album. And one of the things I've always been really interested in is, you know, I'm kind of a literature book nerd. And I thought, I wonder if there, one of the most difficult things about instrumental music for people is actually what I like about it is there's so much room for your imagination, but without having a lyrics to, to deliver a very clear message even if it's a metaphorical one, but with, without that, I think a lot of people have a hard time with instrumental music and want a little bit more structure or a little bit more clarity. And I thought, what if I somehow did something musically that was related to a piece of literature somehow? And I had been playing around with ideas for like, like I love Macbeth. It's one of my favorite Shakespeare plays. It's so dark. <laughs> um, and I was thinking about that. And then at the time, Michael Melinda who was the editor of Guitar Player Magazine, had heard Hail Souls. And he said, Hey, I have um, an idea. I'd like, you know, for you and your career, I'd like to bounce it off you. And I was like, okay, fine. Um, Sounds good. Uh, And I prepared myself for hearing what I've heard so, so many times. And that is, why don't you sing? And why don't you you play you know why are you playing this instrumental weird stuff that nobody you know like basically people my whole career trying to encourage me to go a commercial more accessible route um and and I remember even meeting with some somebody who was I don't know he was supposed to be super important I don't remember who he was but in LA and he couldn't we just it was like we were speaking two different languages he just didn't understand the idea that i didn't care about like making choices that would make me as famous as possible that but that i was interested in making sure that my music could at least be enjoyed by people who might be interested in it even if it's to a much smaller crowd so i went into the meeting already with my defenses up of once again explaining to somebody why i don't want to sing and all of that and instead we sat down at, I think it was like a Pete's coffee and he brings out a sheet of paper and it said, you know, Mike Melinda meeting with Gretchen Men, um, Dante's Inferno, a journey in 11 different musical moods. And I just took one look at that and it was like a goosebumps moment where I was like, I know what the next few years of my life are going to be. And I say few years because when you're talking about tackling... Dante, right? I mean, anything like I try to take seriously, but I was aware of how much that was going to require me to grow musically, even with the, you know, the, the degree and some of the background. I was, I was like, no, no, this, this isn't like a, a rock concept album. Like I need to be referencing like, like the rite of spring, like, you know, Stravinsky, like I, I need to be not just referencing great effective rock albums or concept albums, you know, Pink Floyd or Amused to Death by Roger Waters or some of, you know, Kate, Kate Bush has some wonderful things too. Um, 50 words for snow, but I was like, I'm going to have to get my compositional and orchestration chops to a a totally different level. So I, I actually sought out, um, a teacher named Elizabeth Erickson. She's fantastic. And started working on the pieces, studying orchestration more, going deeper with counterpoint, and sending her uh, scores that I prepared using Sibelius. Um, and she plays strings and piano, so I could send her the parts and she could, you know, double check and make sure that I was writing things that made sense. And I remember her sometimes coming back and saying, "Okay, the arpeggio you have on violin, it's playable, but if you move this middle note in here." To this other thing, it really falls under the fingers nicely, and then I would try it out. I'm like, okay, it's basically the same thing, but it's more friendly for the player. So I spent a lot of time really trying to make sure that every note for every instrument was um, was idiomatically appropriate and and at the same time still um, uh, contributed to a sense of journey, which was the other challenge was to try to make it all the different levels of dante's underworld not just sound like different flavors of fire and brimstone but actually still feel like a journey of sorts so So it was a long process
1: (laughs) i can imagine so i know you 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 studied composition but when you how much composition in the classical sense had you been doing before this project
0: a bit you know like i had studied uh, uh, well let me answer that better it was the most that I had done all at once. So Abandon All Hope is the most intense body of work that I have for that more leaning in a very composed, you know, every note for every instrument, you know, checking checking things with great scrutiny and detail. That was the most I had done. Now I had done like a string quartet, a couple of things in college. I'd won an award for best student composition. Um, I'd done things, but oh, man, talk about a very, very huge universe composition, right? And then orchestration too. So I'm still, I'm still working on it every day. You know, I'm, am always trying and, to go. Is,
1: is it something that you hear in your head? Is it on paper? Like how, what's the process of creating what you did?
0: It's um, there are different ways. Um, uh, I do have everything transcribed. There's a program I use called Sibelius. It's like a scoring program, so it is on virtual paper. Uh, sometimes I will sketch things out on like regular staff paper, but nowadays we, you know, we all have our devices and our ways of getting things down. So, uh,
1: but are you composing with a guitar at all? Like. Is the guitar involved?
0: Very little, very little. Um, I can tell you what I did compose on the guitar. I composed uh, the riff for Shadows, um, just that main heavy riff. The tapping line for uh, Savages, that was like, that came from a guitar tapping line that I had come up with. But But most of it was actually written first, and then I had to go and learn it. Which was a real pain, I can tell. (laughs) So um, most of it was written away from the guitar, with, with a few exceptions.
1: I think it's a brilliant piece of work. What did it do for you? Other than to know that you accomplished this amazing piece of work. But as a musician who is known a certain way, what did releasing that album do for you? How was it perceived and how was it received?
0: Well, I only know what people have gone out of their way to tell me. So we we tend to hear, I think, more from our fans than our, our foes. Well, I shouldn't say foes. Let's just say YouTube comments are one thing, but emails are usually for, you know, who's going to email you to say how much they think you suck. I mean, maybe some people would, um, I, I have a folder of emails that to me, it's like I was so touched how people in some cases were their emails sounded like poetry like the album meant something to them um and for that i'm so grateful you know i wrote it i don't want to say that i wrote it without other people in mind but i wrote it knowing that it wasn't on any level going to be for everybody um but it was something i wanted to do and, and I happened to write it during kind of a, a, an incredibly difficult time that I was going through as well. And so there's some pieces that I remember actually being an outlet, you know. Um, so I learned so much doing it. I became a better guitar player doing it. I became a better uh, composer, a better producer. And we can always feel unworthy to do projects. And yet by postponing them, we miss out on the opportunity for the lessons that we'll only learn by doing the project. So even though maybe now, if I started again from square one, there'd be things that I could see that I might do a little bit differently, but it's a moment in time and it's a, a snapshot along my development. I'm I'm proud of it. I worked hard on it. And to me the best thing or the most important thing art can be is honest and and not pander it's not to say that there's not a place for pop or whatever but i don't like i don't like being talked down to by art i mean who likes being talked down to nobody does but i i like i like art that that i have to reach out to a little bit that engages me and so that's what I wanted to write for anybody who might be interested in hearing it
1: well it's as I said it's a stunning piece of work and well done
0: so you. you you
1: talked about doing that gig recently and not knowing what the people knew about you or were concerned about which you they knew mm-hmm. did that ever get in the way like you know you go on the internet and I can watch you play a Beethoven piece on the acoustic guitar, I can watch you do um, a Zeppelin instrumental of going to California, Mm -hmm. I can watch you do Zeppelin as a band. Um, Obviously, as you said, your interests are wide. But does that work against you? Is it ever a thing that you're frustrated by?
0: It's a choice. So I'm not frustrated by it. I often think God, it'd be so nice just if I had a lane that I loved and just was happy staying in that one. Um, Having so many interests means that I'm constantly feeling like there's something that I'm letting slide. So if I'm really going strong on my acoustic playing, maybe some of my shred chops, I feel like are deteriorating. Or if I've been really working hard on improvisation, maybe I feel like I've neglected composing. So there's that, you know, which is not just um, the the mental game of just constantly being like, "How about if I don't beat myself up every five minutes?" but also the reality that there's only so many hours in the day and I can't stay at my peak form and be improving at everything all at once, <laughs> right? So it works against me in terms of that it slows down the level of progress I could make in any one area but i feel like on the other hand you can sometimes take interesting things from one discipline and apply it in creative ways elsewhere and ultimately you know we're as unique theoretically as individuals as we are as musicians and if what my muses or my inclinations tell me is that i guess i'm put here to juggle (laughs) then then i'd be I'd be going against what what my natural desire is. And even if that means that it's a a much smaller uh, group of people who are going to be interested in what I'm doing, I'm not doing this to try to get it, you know, as many as much attention as possible. i'm 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 interested in making music that I would want to not just that I would want to hear. I'm interested in making music that that is authentic and genuine and is an expression that that's true to, to who, who I am and what I want to become as a musician. And, I, and I'm not saying that like it's special or unique to me. I think everybody has to do that. I think every musician, no matter what their genre, no matter where they are on the path, um, I think that's what we all kind of want to do.
1: In a way, I would imagine the abandon all Hope touches upon many of the different things that you do. Mm-hmm. right from the shredding to the acoustic to the composition yeah and I, I don't yeah. know if that would be rare in your other projects but the fact that you can incorporate all that and come up with a piece that's quite coherent that has a beginning middle and end mm. is pretty impressive i i have to wonder what are you working on next i mean is is there another big project in the works
0: well when i i think for a lot of people once you get done with a big project there's a little bit of that what do you call it? Like post Christmas letdown, you know, where, where so much has gone into this, this event. And then like, and then it's kind of done and it's out in the world. And now you're like, oh, so much of all of my energy has been put into this. And then it's like, where does it go now? And I was really, I had a, a, a sense that I was so happy with team of people I worked on the album with like Michael Melinda, who did the concept and the libretto and Max Crace, who did all the art uh, and photography, and then all of the musicians who played on it, I was just, I just loved everybody and every moment of it so much. And I thought, God, I, I don't want this journey to be over. And then I'm like, wait a minute. It's not just the Inferno. It's the divine comedy. I got two more before i have to really be sad about this so i'm actually um almost done composing purgatory um which though initially i had been working on an album of like solo guitar pieces something that i'm like okay i want to do something different i want to do something that i can play live it was in the middle of the pandemic that i realized you know it's interesting how Abandon all hope ended up kind of coinciding with this really dark time in my life And then I thought, man, if there's ever been something that felt like purgatory, it's this pandemic. (laughs) So I'm like, all right, I'm going to channel that into into the the next phase of the Dante journey. So uh, this one I have, I think about one or two more pieces left to write. Again, it's going to be like a 15 track kind of double length album. And it's, I'm expanding it as well. I have other instruments that I'm including, so it's going to be even even more of of all of it.
1: I should wrap this up, but let me ask you how do you define success?
0: I think it's approving of yourself. I don't think that you can measure it by career milestones or Awards or accolades, or anything. I, I, I think it really I think it's so easy to have external markers that one would assume are success. And at the end of the day, if you don't approve of yourself, if you don't feel that you've made decisions creatively or otherwise that are within your own personal and creative integrity, it feels even it, it would feel false. So I think for me, success is the constant path of learning. It's the constant path of trying to become a better person and a better musician and knowing that some days are harder and sometimes it's, you know, two steps forward, one step back. But that if, if the intention and the trajectory is towards trying to be a little bit better always, that's that's the best success I think I could hope for.
1: And if I was to ask you, if you have goals right now, what would it would it be just what you had set?
0: Those are the big goals. I mean, I have little goals too, you know, things that I got to get done. Like I need to review a piece. I'm performing with uh, the Utah Symphony next year. Um, Stephen Mackey, this amazing composer, um, is writing a guitar concerto. And I will wow. be... Performing that, that I will be nervous for. (laughs) That will be a perfect example of me having adrenaline. (laughs) I don't know for how long. Uh, but I'm trying to get ahead on some things. I'm I'm in school right now too. I'm working on a master's degree. So I have, you know, little clear goals of like my goal is to do this practice today and to turn in this video this time and and all of that. But in terms of larger goals, yeah, just to be just to constantly be learning and growing and trying to be a better musician than I was the day before.
1: Well, you're you're quite an impressive musician that I that I've noticed. So thank you so much for doing this. It's it's been a real pleasure meeting you.
0: Oh, thank you so much for having me. Um Angela Petrilli is such a wonderful person, musician. It was her birthday yesterday and her EP that is so wonderful, and I'm, I'm so grateful that she connected us. Um, she's a, one of my favorite people.
1: Well, she speaks very highly of you, and as a mentor, which, maybe you can, can we close off with that? Where does that come from? Like, where does that idea of being a mentor come from?
0: Oh, that goes both ways. My gosh, I feel like Angela's, like, goals in so many ways. I, I, I see it as that I have so many wonderful, accomplished friends, and if if I ever help steer somebody in a good direction or give them advice that they think makes their life a little bit better, then what an honor! But they do the same for me, you know. I feel like Angela is so gracious and so generous with her time and her talents and her um, the the kindness she extends to people. She's she is a, an A plus human being, and I I feel like she's you know. A friend and a mentor and inspiration to me too
1: well, well said thank you so much for doing this
0: oh thank you so much for having me it's an absolute pleasure